I'm sure you might like to know why a mighty fortress is our God is the hymn of the month. And I will tell you at the end of the service. Got to give you something to look forward to. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy 1. We're coming to the end of our very brief tour of 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's been quick. We've taken the theme of the beautiful bride of Christ. That what is the church of Jesus Christ to be about? How are we to prepare for that glorious day when we meet the Lord Jesus himself? What are the elements of that preparation? Since this is our last message in 1 Timothy 1, let me just recap for a moment. What are the elements of that preparation? Well, the church needs, first of all, New Testament preaching. We must preach the regular diet of the revelation given by the Holy Spirit after the ascension of Christ. We have to have that. We must have effective disciples, men and women eager to learn, eager to grow, eager to become more and more like Christ, this yearning for holiness and Christ-likeness. We must have Christ-honoring people, people who love and guard the truth of the gospel. We honor Christ by guarding His truth It's been entrusted to us by him. We have no rights over the truth except to guard it. The fourth need we saw is that we need loving instruction. That the church needs the continual instruction of the word from the pulpits of the churches in the spirit of love and a desire to foster Christ-likeness. We can't simply ride the coattails of spiritual growth we experienced a decade ago. We can't do that. We saw that the church needs spiritual protection, that God's people need to be spiritually guarded, and this is done by safeguarding the non-negotiables of the church. And we saw that the non-negotiables of the church is that we are, we are the assembly, we are the gathering of Christ, and these include various elements of worship that no man gets to tell us how to, when to, or if to participate in. We also saw that we need Old Testament preaching. We need to know the full picture of God's redemptive plan and see that there's one story of redemption, not two. We need to rip the blank page out between the Old and the New Testaments and see that it's one story. We saw that we need holiness declaration, that the unholy cannot have fellowship with God, and therefore we need to declare God's holiness and our unholiness and come into right relationship with Him only through belief in the Lord Jesus Christ who provided a way for us to be holy by being the sacrifice for our sin. We saw that we need gospel thankfulness, that the gospel of Jesus Christ should never be some mundane past truth that we used to think about a lot when we first got saved, but rather it should be the light, it should be that which stokes the fires of our gratitude more and more. If I could put it this way, the last thing on planet Earth, the very last thing, that you should breathe a prayer of gratitude for is your salvation. And then last week we said that the church, one of the elements of our preparation is steadfast ministry. That steadfast and faithful ministry is only possible with steadfast and faithful ministers of the gospel, elders who stay the course, who do the hard work of shepherding the sheep, knowing the sheep, teaching the sheep, being with the sheep, understanding the church. Well, we have one final element to the preparation of the beautiful bride of Christ, the sprucing up of the church, as it were, and we'll call that church purity. 
church purity, the purity of the church. Now, from a purely human standpoint, reading 1 Timothy chapter 1, I wish it ended on this high note of joy. But really, it ends on a dark minor chord of gloom. And that's what we have here. The high point of chapter 1 has already happened. Verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. If I was putting together the chapter and verses, I'd probably end chapter 1 right there. That would make much more sense. I wasn't in charge of that. That was like a thousand years ago. So I don't get to have a say. But after that high point, then we saw last week that Paul reminds Timothy of the charge. He's given them back at the beginning of the letter. Verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. And then the bombshell, the dark minor chord that ends this chapter. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Did Paul just name names publicly? He did. He did. So we need to look at this. Let's just very simply look at three elements of this text. First, we'll call the first one the spiritual shipwreck. Then we'll look at the spiritual consequences. And then we'll look at the spiritual adversary. The spiritual shipwreck, the spiritual consequences, the spiritual adversary. Now, why is this important? The Lord Jesus Christ wants his bride pure. We're not allowed and we're not to allow the degradation of the bride by letting smudges on the wedding dress, so to speak, go unchecked. We have an obligation. So first, let's look at the spiritual shipwreck. The spiritual shipwreck. I did a big study of the Greek word for shipwreck and it means to wreck a ship, basically. And it's a beautiful word picture because we can all understand that immediately. You have the picture in your own mind, the the swelling waves and the growing panic and that sudden knowledge that we're not going to make it. The rocks coming up, you see them only in the lightning flashes and knowing that one of those swells of the waves is going to land you on a rock and the ship is going to begin to come apart. And lives are going to be lost, and all is lost. We don't need any explanation. We know what that means, this growing doom, this impending danger, the disaster of breaking apart. All of that is in play in this word picture. So what is the spiritual shipwreck? Well, we get a really good clue with the phrase beginning in verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience. Now, the question is, what faith are we talking about here? Is it speaking of the content of our faith? Might be. Is it speaking of the act of believing itself? It might be. Is it speaking of just all the things that we believe about Christ? It might be. But in any of those cases, faith in Christ is clearly connected at the hip with a good conscience. What does that mean? It means that our faith and our conduct are intertwined. They go together. It means that when you start messing with the faith, then you start tampering with what we believe, then there will be repercussions in our conduct, repercussions in what we do. And if there are repercussions in your conduct, guess what that affects? It affects your conscience. And the worst thing that can you, you can have happen to your conscience is that it stops working for you in some area of life because you have 
As Paul says elsewhere, you have seared the conscience where you don't listen anymore. That what you say you believe and what you do now become more and more disconnected. That's a dangerous spiritual place. I've been in pastoral ministry for about 25 years now, and I've watched this transformation as a pastor. I've seen this in church members, someone who used to be all in, so to speak, eager to hear the word, seemingly eager to live for Christ, slowly over time becoming mesmerized by either some sort of temptation or a pet irritation or annoyance and becomes more and more desensitized to a particular sin tendency And after a time, that person's profession of faith is in danger of at least appearing to to be false because they're so seared in their conscience. And really, only time will tell if that person was ever a believer or not. But on the positive side, when your faith and your conscience are working in tandem, you're easily convicted, you're sensitive to your own sin. Then you experience what should be the experience that we should all have when faith and conscience work together. What do we call that? We call that joy. Christian joy is the state of being in which your faith and your conscience agree with each other. That's joy. But if you begin to deviate either in the faith or in your conduct, the other one is then negatively impacted because we deeply want them to match. Let me, let me explain what I mean. If you begin doing things that are contrary to your faith, we don't like that. That, call, that causes dissonance in our mind so if you're doing something you're not willing to give up then you have to change what you believe so that they match or if you change what you believe first then you must change your conduct to match what you believe because we always want to be consistent and so one will negatively impact the other and this person can become a major problem in the church Because if the conscience stops working, then they'll do anything to fight their corner, anything to cause problems, to lure people to their way of thinking, because if you're the odd man out, you feel better when other people are with you, right? That's human nature. And this becomes a person not concerned about the consequences or the pain caused to others. And so their behavior may expose them to needing correction up to and including full church discipline, being expelled from the local gathering until their conscience reactivates. And humility is restored if God would be so gracious. So what is the spiritual shipwreck? What is it? Very simply, it is a veering away from the gospel truths into deviant belief systems. Either through your conduct or through your belief in the first place. Those will then be accompanied by problems with your conduct. Problems with your behavior. And if that goes on long enough, this becomes entrenched. Your conscience then no longer serves you. And you begin destroying your own joy, calling into question the reality of your salvation. Were you ever saved or not? Now it becomes difficult to tell. That brings us to the spiritual consequences. The spiritual consequences. And we'll spend most of our time on this point. Hymenaeus and Alexander. God has handed them over to Satan. Paul has rather at God's request. Why has he done this? Well, they've rejected. They've rejected. We'll start right there, first of all. This is a term to mean to adamantly oppose something. This is not something done out of ignorance. This is not, oh, I just didn't know this. This is a purposeful, willful rejection. And what is it that they've rejected? It says, by rejecting this. The Greek pronoun here is correctly translated singular. It's not rejecting faith, and a good conscience, this, they're rejecting a good conscience. 
And this is very important because what this means is whatever they were doing, Alexander and Hymenaeus, it wasn't bothering them anymore. They, their conscience wasn't activated. They had no conviction. They had no guilt. You, you wouldn't be able to speak to them. You wouldn't be able to say, here's five reasons what you're doing is wrong. Here's what God would say about this. They're not hearing it. They won't listen. Their hearts are hardened to their own incredibly divisive and destructive actions. Now, why does Paul single them out? Remember, this would be a letter that is addressed at the very end of the letter to the whole church. This would be read to everyone. Why does he single them out? Well, they're in the category, verse 3, of certain persons. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. We've said this before, but Hymenaeus and Alexander were almost certainly elders in the church at Ephesus. They were teachers. And they had gone down the road of teaching self-serving, unscriptural teachings that we've looked at in weeks prior based in the myths and genealogies that are mentioned earlier here in chapter 1. They've gotten away from Scripture and gotten more into tradition. Paul, at some point, became personally involved with the case of Hymenaeus and Alexander, and Paul says he has handed them over to Satan. Now, what does this mean? Well, most likely what it means is that they've been shown the door. They've been put out of the church. But the implications of this phrase are pretty instructive to us here. To be in the church of Jesus Christ, to be in the gathering of the body, is to be in the sphere of influence of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Hebrews chapter 6 even warns that it's possible to have tasted of the Holy Spirit, meaning to be around a whole bunch of people who are in the Spirit of God and yet not be in the Spirit. But the church is the sphere of the Spirit. This is, there is a reason that the room we meet in is called a sanctuary. It's different. In the family of God, this is where the Holy Spirit is dominant. This is where the people of God are taught the Word of God and we're strengthened by the Spirit of God. This is one of the many reasons that the church cannot simply be a theoretical idea. The church is a gathering. The church is a sphere of influence where as we are together, the Holy Spirit is dominant. It is the gathering of God's people into groups, which really is for us the closest thing to heaven on this side of heaven, right? This is the closest thing. So what does that mean then to be handed over to Satan? To be in the realm of Satan then is to be solely into life outside the church. To be placed in the life outside the church, not let back in, where that person would experience the malice, the hatred of Satan without the benefit of the fellowship of the body of Christ. Listen, we need each other's fellowship. If you think, well, I know enough that I can not fellowship with the body for a period of time and be fine. If you think that, try it and see what happens. You will go haywire. You will quit thinking correctly because you need the people of God in order to think correctly. There is a reason that we are not called rocket scientists. We're called sheep. The sheep always need the shepherd What does it mean to be turned over to Satan? There's some evidence that this would include the likelihood of physical problems, illness, some sort of discipline that gets their attention. Now, here's the big question in this text. This is the million-dollar question. Are Hymenaeus and Alexander true believers in Christ, or are they frauds? I'm going to firmly stand right on the fence on that one. Because there's evidence on both sides. First of all, there's evidence that they're frauds. 
They've made shipwreck of their faith. It's not a slight belief difference. They've made shipwreck of their faith. They've been teaching what's contrary to the biblical gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. They've been publicly called out by Paul. They've been identified to the whole church. These guys are bad news. They've seared their consciences. They're not responsive to the conviction and the guilt which should be pricking their conscience when they've misled those church members in their charge. They've been handed over to Satan's realm to purify the church. Pretty good evidence that they're frauds. But there's also some evidence that they might be believers just under some very severe discipline. They're handed over to Satan to be taught a lesson that they may learn not to blaspheme. You don't see the apostles trying to teach unbelievers how to be more Christ-like. They're not doing that. Alexander and Hymenaeus are to learn not to denigrate the biblical gospel or stray from the truth found in the scripture alone, which is what it means to blaspheme. It is to give God a bad name. This treatment of Alexander and Hymenaeus would fit with Paul's treatment of the sexually immoral man in the Corinthian church. Recorded in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, that he was to be delivered to Satan, there it is again, quote, for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. There's a lesson to be learned. Now, it doesn't exactly say that man was already saved, but it may indicate at least a hope that he will be saved. But it could be that the church is turning him over for discipline. I don't mind standing on the fence on this, because I think there's actually a usefulness to the ambiguity. There's a usefulness to... Uh, were Hymenaeus and Alexander saved or not? We want to be really black and white because we want to be able to say, well, of course, I would never be with Alexander and Hymenaeus. Or at least, to be honest, and say, yeah, absolutely, those guys are great. I'm with them. But the ambiguity makes us nervous, and it's supposed to. The passage doesn't tell us whether Hymenaeus and Alexander are true believers, and Paul doesn't even claim to know. But it should warn us that if your orthodoxy and your orthopraxy, your faith and your conduct, make it impossible to discern if you are a true believer or not, then you should be afraid. You should be warned. There should be a genuine terror on your part that you may not be in Christ. Now, I'm not going to close in prayer right now and have you all crawl out of here terrified. But there are some questions you could ask yourself. What has changed because of Christ? What are you willing to give up? What are you willing to sacrifice? What beliefs do you hold dear? How precious to you is the genuine gospel of grace and faith? And when you think on the cross, when you think of the Via Dolorosa, the the way of suffering that Christ walked all the way to the cross, what does that engender in your heart? When you think of the resurrection of Christ unto new life such that we can have new life, what does that engender in your heart? When you think of his ascension into heaven whereby he is now seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you, how comforted are you by that? That you as a sinner are represented by Christ 24-7. When these truths well up in your heart, what happens? How about this one from 1 John about a couple of dozen times? How much do you love the people of God? And how do you yearn for them? Listen, you might even have a fairly correct belief system, but even the demons believe in Christ. James 2 tells us this. A correct belief doesn't necessarily guarantee a useful Christian life. Every believer must combine the right understanding of Christ and the gospel with the right response to that understanding. Those two go together, faith and conduct. 
Or to put it as James did in James 2.14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The implied answer is no. No. Hymenaeus and Alexander perhaps were turned over to Satan to teach them to become so weary of following their own flesh, to make them so sick of their own sin and of the world that they long for the true church again, long to gather with God's people, and perhaps this time to be obedient. This is like the parent of the little child who the child kept sneaking bites of cake from the fridge and kept getting in trouble. And mom kept telling the little child, if you keep sneaking bites of cake, you're going to get sick. And the child wouldn't believe her and would get up in the middle of the night and go grab a spoon and sneak the bite of cake. And the wise mom, one morning the child got up and in the place where breakfast usually is was the whole cake. And mom said, here's a spoon, eat it. Well, I don't want the whole thing, mommy. No, you're going to eat it until the child is throwing up. What do you think is going to happen next time mom says, don't eat the cake? This is what Paul does with Alexander and Hymenaeus. Will they be regathered? We're never told. We don't know what happened with Hymenaeus and Alexander, but here's what we do know. The church of Jesus Christ was purified of some bad influences, and God received glory because of that purity. Let me show you a clear example that we have in Revelation. I said we would camp on this point for a while. We've looked at the seven churches of Revelation many times before, but we have endless treasures here. I want to have you turn with me to Revelation 2. Revelation chapter 2, and I'd like to do a review of the church at Thyatira. The church at Thyatira. This is the church that tolerates sin. That tolerates sin. Revelation 2, verse 18 And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, right? And we've said before that the angel of the church, this is a human messenger. This is a, a, today we would call him a senior pastor. The angel of the church in Thyatira, right? The words of the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first Jesus refers to himself here, the only time in all of the book of Revelation, by the way, as the Son of God. He's referencing his deity. And again, looking back at the description of Christ in Revelation chapter 1, he says he has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are burnished bronze. What does it mean he has eyes like a flame of fire? Well, this is best explained in verse 23. He says, I am he who searches mind and heart. Even the sinful thoughts that are displeasing to him don't escape his notice. That you, you can't make a show of outward purity and somehow think that your personal inward secret sin won't be found out. He knows. And he has feet like burnished bronze back in verse 18. What does this mean? Well, bronze is simply um, copper and metallic zinc put together. It's pure and it's strong. And that the Lord Jesus Christ is strong enough to conquer his enemies and pure enough to judge his enemies. The point of verse 18 of his self-revelation here is that he's all-knowing, he's holy, he's all-powerful. Then in verse 19, he gives them five commendations, things the church as a whole are doing quite well. Their works are good, he says. I know your works. They're a working church. Apparently, they come together corporately for the sake of the gospel. Not only do they work together, 
unlike the church of Ephesus who was told to return to that which they used to do, he says Thyatira is doing even more. Your latter works exceed the first. They're training leaders, evangelists. They're making disciples. They're moving from merely meeting together to training people to make a visible impact on their community, planting other churches perhaps, making a splash for the gospel. Thyatira is doing this. Jesus commends them also for their love. Unlike the church at Ephesus, whom Jesus told they had lost their first love, but the church in Thyatira was characterized by love. They took care of one another. They were trying to carry out the command to love one another. He also commends them for their faith. They were growing in Christian maturity, growing in God's word, understanding the doctrines of grace, learning to trust the Lord more and more. Their service was commended. Not only did they work, but they did it with servants' attitudes and hearts. They encouraged one another. They served one another in eagerness. They were outdoing one another in brotherly kindness. They took joy in serving. They used their spiritual gifts for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the church. And then Jesus commends them for their patient endurance. The patient endurance. The church in Thyatira had been going for some decades now. You know, today about 10 to 20% of church plants will fail in two years. But this one hadn't. They were enduring. They were moving on. This was a, a wonderful church. They were hardworking, loving, growing in faith, serving one another, enduring in faithfulness. Verse 20, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, Before we step into the details here, the lesson is very clear to the church. Notice that Jesus is not saying, well, you have a lot going for you, so I'm just going to overlook this one small detail. He doesn't do that. Holiness is all-consuming. If the light in one room of the house is out, that doesn't make up for the light in the other part of the house. You have to have light everywhere. If one Room of the house is filthy. It doesn't, isn't made up for by the cleanliness of the rest of the house. The Lord Jesus Christ wants all of his house clean. And so what he's saying here is, I appreciate the many clean rooms of your house, but you have one giant stinking mess of a room, and her name is Jezebel, and you'd better deal with her. Now you recall the Jezebel of the Old Testament. She was the Canaanite daughter of the king of Sidon and an act of wickedness in the time of Elijah the prophet. King Ahab of the northern kingdom of Israel married a Canaanite. And her name has been used to personify wickedness and immorality ever since. I've gotten to dedicate a lot of babies in my 25 years of ministry. I've never dedicated a Jezebel. She practiced witchcraft. She worshipped Baal and Asherah. She financially supported hundreds of false prophets. She tried to kill the true prophets of God. 1 Kings chapter 21, King Ahab wanted a vineyard. The vineyard belonged to Naboth. It was next to the palace. He wanted a garden. He offered good money for it. Naboth said, no, this is my family land. And so Jezebel had Naboth falsely accused of treason, blasphemy, had him executed and took his land. What happened to Jezebel as a result, this sexually immoral woman, immoral in every way? 2 Kings 9, God judged her. She was thrown off her balcony, trampled by horses, and her body completely devoured by wild dogs. And so Jesus identifies a woman in the church of Thyatira 
We have no reason to believe that this is a reference to anything other than an actual woman, and he calls her Jezebel, the epitome of wickedness. And in fact, Jesus targets four groups in his condemnation here. He targets Jezebel herself. First of all, she calls herself a prophetess. What does that mean? It means she's claiming to speak from God, speak for God. And what was she claiming God was saying? She's claiming God is saying it's okay to participate in pagan sacrifices. It's okay to follow your illicit sexual desires. You're free in Christ. You can do anything you want. Well, there's two problems with this. First of all, she's manipulating people to follow her by claiming to speak for God. Imagine the teaching elders in the church trying to preach the scriptures. It's very hard to compete with someone who says that they're just hearing directly from God. And the second problem, of course, is that she's directly contradicting the scriptures, turning people away from the word of God instead of toward it, just like who? Hymenaeus and Alexander. What's going to happen to her? Verse 21 I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Apparently, the leadership did approach her, did ask her to stop, but they didn't follow through. They didn't stand up to her. They didn't make a a final stand. No doubt, she would be highly influential. A lot of people liked her. She probably had a strong personality if that many people were following her. She had developed this following, so they hesitated to stand firm against her. And that is always the case in the church of Jesus Christ. There's always the few powerful people that everybody's afraid of. And they hadn't stood up to her. And so what's her fate? Verse 22, Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. In other words, he says, If she wants to be obsessed with a bed of sexual immorality, then I'll make it to where she can't get out of bed. I'll make her eat the whole cake, so to speak. God would take her health, put her out of commission. Was Jezebel a true believer? The text doesn't say. But we do know that the Lord was gracious and kind with her. And so Christ condemns Jezebel, but he also condemns the leadership. This is the second group. Verse 20, you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. You tolerate, literally in Greek, it means you forgive her. You keep forgiving this. She likely made a half-hearted reply of promising never to do it again, but they just kept watching that she did it again and again. The elders of the church weren't dealing with her false teaching, weren't dealing with her blatant immorality. A couple of problems with this. The first problem is they were letting her teach at any level. 1 Timothy 2.12 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. There is no lack of clarity to that. But in the name of not offending anyone, a particularly a powerful woman in the church, the elders waffled and they didn't take a stand. And what did that do? It just opened the door to further trouble. Anytime you compromise a little, guess what you're going to have to do to maintain it? Compromise a lot. What should they have done? What they should have done, Titus 3, 10, and 11, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. They should have cleaned house. They should have called people to repentance, to be faithful to their husbands, faithful to their wives, and stop participating in pagan idolatry. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is not concerned with a big church. He's not concerned with a fancy church. He's concerned with a pure church. That's his concern. Jesus also condemned a third group, the first generation of Jezebel's followers. 
They're still true believers. Verse 20, she's seducing my servants, he says, to practice sexual immorality, to eat food, sacrifice to idols. She was encouraging the true believers to compromise, to attempt to follow Christ while still indulging in the the pleasures of sin that the world loves. And what was going to happen to this first generation of those following her, those who commit adultery with her? Verse 22, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. As what always happens in growing heretical movements, it generally starts in the church, not outside the church with maybe even true believers who believe the gospel but have gone just slightly off track enough that they pass on this so-called new revelation from a Jezebel to a new generation, a second generation. Well, what's the problem? The second generation will now mistake the teaching of Jezebel for the gospel. That what used to be a slight deviation now becomes normal. And Jesus condemns this fourth group, the second generation, Jezebel's spiritual children, so to speak, they find themselves under condemnation. Verse 23, and I will strike her children dead. Why is the punishment so severe? Two reasons. First reason, the second generation of a heretical movement often spawns a third generation very quickly, and by then, it's too late. By then, the church is done. And it grows exponentially. The second reason the punishment is so severe Verse 24 tells us the actual originator of Jezebel's teaching and practices. Verse 24, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. The idea is that Jezebel most likely was teaching that to fully appreciate the grace of God, you had to sink to the lowest depravity possible, that you could do anything you want. Do we have a name for that today? We do. It's called free grace theology. We preached a whole series about this. That grace means I can do whatever I want, anytime I want. It's an antinomian way of life that ignores the law of God. By the way, this is what Solomon tried as recorded in Ecclesiastes. He, he basically said, I'm going to try to do anything I want. And let's see what the spiritual end of that is. The end of Ecclesiastes, his final conclusion He says, the end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so the Lord Jesus Christ addresses these four groups in very severe terms. But there is a fifth group. The fifth group, verse 24, to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, To you I say, I do not lay on you another burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The fifth group is simply the faithful. And for them, he gives no condemnation. He just encourages them. Even if your leaders fail you, even if Jezebel is never kicked out, even if she wanders freely through the church, you be faithful. You hold fast. And what's the result? Verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The faithful will be given the right to rule in the millennial kingdom. We were created as a kingdom to serve the one true king. And under him, the faithful will be given that responsibility as well. 
And he says, I will give him the morning star. What's the morning star? Better question, who is the morning star? It's only used one at a time in the book of Revelation. Chapter 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. What is the greatest prize in heaven of all? The greatest prize in heaven is unbroken, face-to-face, perfect communion with sweet Lord Jesus Christ, the morning star. All the wonderful things the church in Thyatira did did not excuse the failure of the leadership and the tolerance of sin in the midst of the church. Well, we can go back to 1 Timothy 1 now. In the Thyatira example, the leadership is on the hook. Here in Ephesus, two leaders are publicly called out for their sinful behavior and teaching misleading truths of not being thoroughly 100% biblical. And as we've said so many times here at Grace, as the leadership of the church goes, so the church goes. 1 Timothy 5.19 warned, you don't have to turn there, just listen, warns church members not to bring accusations against an elder except on the evidence of several witnesses. In other words, it better be airtight, it better be clear, not just you not liking what a leader does. But then, the subsequent warning to leaders is even clearer. Timothy has been charged by Paul, chapter 1, verse 3, to tell leaders to stop teaching what's contrary to Scripture, and if they won't, here's the question of the ages, how do you get a bad leader out? How do you get a bad elder out? How do you do that? 1 Timothy 5.20, the other side of the coin. As for those, meaning elders, who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. What is this? This is a surprise. This is Timothy standing up in front of the church and said, Hymenaeus, Alexander, get out. And here's why. This is calling out a leader in public after multiple attempts on Timothy's part to bring him to repentance. What does this do? It drains them of power, drains them of influence that the church can now go forward. The spiritual consequences of the shipwreck of the faith are massive. They're massive. Well, finally, we can look at the spiritual adversary. The spiritual adversary I told you this was a dark minor chord at the end here. I didn't write it. I'm just preaching it. The spiritual adversary, these two failed leaders are handed over to Satan. And there we've identified the true spiritual adversary. There's the real enemy. Satan is the natural nemesis of God, the supernatural nemesis of God. He hates the church. He hates all in the church. And he'll do all he can to prevent people from coming to faith in Christ. Jesus said in Mark 4, 15, listen to this, that for some who hear the gospel, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Now, he does serve God's purposes as being the instrument of chastisement for sinners. For example, concerning God's servant Job, Job 2, verse 6, says the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. In other words, Satan is given parameters and limits. And as we saw in the church at Thyatira, Satan yearns to infiltrate the church of Jesus Christ. And listen, he is good at it. He's extremely good at it. For example, a big question in the church of Jesus Christ and a big question in our church today 
has to do with things like, should we wear masks or not? Should we completely obey the government or has the government overstepped in some points? Many, many other questions. Listen carefully. The spiritual battle is not necessarily getting the answers to those questions right, but how we treat one another in the midst of navigating those questions. That's the battle. That's the battle. Will we obey Ephesians 4.29? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Listen, Satan would like nothing more than to see the churches of Jesus Christ filled with people turning on one another like bleeding sharks in the same pool. That's what Satan would like. Doing a pretty good job so far. Satan is the true enemy. And listen, every time you're tempted to be bitter, to be nasty, to be sinfully indignant at a fellow believer, ask yourself this question, what would Satan have me do? Then do the opposite. The church is to be purified. Christ wants a pure church, and there's basically two ways that that happens. There's two ways. First of all, the continual pursuit of godliness by those who will humble themselves to grow in the Lord, and it takes humility. But the second way that the church is purified for those who dig their heels in concerning their own sin they must be warned they must be taught they must be brought along in any way possible and if necessary excused from the fellowship until such time as they decide to behave now if that scares you into thinking wait a minute is the church supposed to be filled with perfect people no of course not it's just that the church must be filled with broken people with broken people, desperately desiring Christ-likeness, recognizing their own sin, continuing to grow in the Lord. I, I want to take these nails we've driven, and I feel like there's a little more room for us to drive them harder, and I want this driven so hard into your heart that you never forget this. And so I want to, just for the sake of sobriety, if you'll allow me to, I'd like to remind you of how many times the New Testament calls for the purity of Christ's church. You don't have to turn to all these. I just want to remind you of some of these. First time that we're most familiar with is Matthew 18, 15 through 18. In the Matthew 18 passage, Jesus tells us that the church has the authority to discipline wayward believers. In this particular case, it begins as something between two believers. The first step is to address that person in private. The second step is that if you're getting nowhere and you feel it's not an issue that can be covered by love, which is what most of them should be, then you take a witness or two, not somebody who saw that person do something, but somebody who will witness you being godly in this confrontation. Third, you tell it to the church. This is for the purpose of calling the person to repentance. The the method by which this is done isn't specified. You're just told to tell it to the church. In the fourth step, the church is informed that this person is to be treated as an unbeliever. It's not a shunning. It's not a complete breaking off of the relationship in every respect in this particular case, but it's a breaking of Christian fellowship. And at that point, there becomes a duty to not continue on as if nothing has happened. There's a gospel obligation that when you run into that person who has been disciplined, you don't say, hey, how are the kids? How's everything? You say, are you going to repent? And so in the case of Matthew 18, there's a four-step process. And it, and it should be, in probably almost every case, long. It should take time. But is it always? Another example we see in 1 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 1, Paul is addressing the situation in which a member of the church has been in an immoral relationship with a family member. 
What's Paul's admonition? 1 Corinthians 5, verse 2. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Verse 9. Purge the evil person from among you. Don't be like Thyatira. How many steps is that? One. One. Paul uses this occasion to remind them that anyone who has publicly called himself a brother. What does this mean? It means that they've been baptized, they've declared themselves publicly to be a follower of Christ, and yet has continued living a double life. Paul says in verses 9 and verse 11, don't associate with anyone like that. Don't associate with them. Now, he clarifies, he says, I'm not talking about the unbelievers who have not professed Christ. I mean, he says, basically, if, if you stopped associating with them, you'd have to be all alone. He's talking about those who have presented themselves as Christians and yet Continue living non-Christian lives. Why the speed in 1 Corinthians 5? Why the decisiveness? Well, first of all, apparently this church has been boasting about how accepting and how seeker-friendly it is. Hey, we'll take anybody for any reason. Paul says in verse 6, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little, little leaven leavens the whole lump? In other words, a little tolerated sin will make everyone filthy. And the second reason for the speed and the decisiveness, he says in verse 1, this is a behavior of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. Listen, when unbelievers are looking at the church saying, those guys are immoral, there's something wrong. They completely misrepresent Christ in the church. How about another example? 2 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 6, Paul is now revisiting a church discipline situation, very likely the same one addressed in 1 Corinthians 5, If that person repents, Paul gives instruction. He says that the punishment by the majority is enough so that rather you should turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Did you notice though, the punishment is given by the church here called the majority. This isn't just a couple of mean elders who are turning on someone. This is the whole church. But Paul tells us that we should hope to, what we always should hope to be able to do to reaffirm your love for them. We could also look at Galatians 6, verse 1. Paul describes the beginning of the process and what the eventual hope and the aim is. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. But this is just the beginning stage. We're to be responsible for one another when we see sin that's observable, to to put your arm around them and say, don't go that way, go this way. Hopefully there will be repentance. We can also look at Ephesians 5, verse 11. What is the church's attitude to be toward wickedness? Is it to cover it up? Is it to hope it goes away on its own? No. Ephesians 5, 11 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. It means to reprove, to confront. Now remember, this is observable, serious sin. Generally, our norm is love covers a multitude of sins. If you make a sharp comment to a friend, they should not stand in front of the church and say, let me tell you what she said last week. No, love covers a multitude of sins. How about 1 Thessalonians 5.14? Paul tells us to admonish the idle, literally in Greek, the disorderly, the insubordinate, those who won't go along with what the church is doing. Admonish means to correct them, redirect them, get them on board. How about 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15? This is a long section. 
in which Paul says, keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness, that disorderliness, that insubordination, and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Who is this? This is the troublemaker. This is the one who's out of step doctrinally, trying to sway others also. This is a person who's attempting to have influence, spending too much time making trouble and not enough time being responsible. Paul's command, and this is a good summary of how to treat the rebellious professing believer, 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And what does this mean, to have nothing to do with him? It means that he's not part of the regular Christian fellowship. You don't invite him over for dinner and say, hey, let's just hang out and enjoy one another. You invite him over for dinner so you can say, I'd like to talk to you about your sin. How about 1 Timothy 1.20, our text here today about Hymenaeus and Alexander. I wanted you to notice what's missing. Four steps is missing. Confidentiality is missing. Extensive, lengthy counseling sessions is missing. These men who are troublemakers in the church, Paul said, you're out. Sometimes the cancer has to be cut out in hopes that God will do something different. Again, in this same situation, or similar situation rather, 1 Timothy 5, we've already referenced this. Paul tells Timothy how the church is to handle when someone brings an accusation against an elder, an accusation of something that's observable, that's serious, potentially unrepentant. They're to be rebuked in the presence of all. I have a pastor friend on the East Coast that just last year called a members meeting. Terrible, terrible situation because he had two elders They were continually trying to hamper and hinder his ministry and they wouldn't work with him. They just couldn't get along with him and they absolutely wouldn't stop. There was a power struggle. And so he called a members meeting and he told them to stand up. And he said, these two guys are making my life miserable. They are not supporting the work of the ministry. Here's what they're doing. You guys need to leave. Anybody who wants to leave with them, there's the door. About a fourth of the church got up and left. You know what's happened to that church since? They've exploded. God has blessed everything they're doing because they had the courage to purify the church. That guy's a hero. And some who left have come back and repented. And we praise God for that. How about 2 Timothy 3.5? Paul's about to give a list. This is a list of what false believers can look like you don't have to turn there just listen beginning second timothy 3 understand this in the last days there will be times of difficulty here's the list people will be lovers of self lovers of money proud arrogant abusive disobedient to their parents ungrateful unholy this long list goes on heartless unappeasable slanderous without self-control brutal not loving good treacherous reckless swollen with conceit lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of god having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, take a deep breath, what are you supposed to do? Avoid such people. The church is to be pure. How about Titus 3, beginning in verse 9? Paul gives Titus instructions in what to do with someone who's defiant, who's a troublemaker. Verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division, warn him once, warn him twice, and have nothing more to do with him. How about Hebrews 13, 17? The author of Hebrews here now gives admonition on how to be a useful and a joyful church member. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. 
How about 2 John 10? What do you do with someone who wants to bring new teaching into the local church, wants to deviate from our doctrinal statement perhaps? Maybe a member who wants to come challenge the good theology of the church and do so in a way that's harmful. 2 John 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any false greeting. Oh, there's a different standard here. With false teachers, you don't make a pretend show of friendship. You don't do it. Are you convinced that the Lord Jesus Christ desires a purified church? I'm fully convinced because it's all over the New Testament. Now, in my human heart of hearts, I wish chapter 1 didn't end on this deep, somber, minor chord. It's like going to a movie and everything is great and the last thing that happens is the hero dies and the credits roll. And you go, really? That, that was horrible. But this is the inspired word of God and we don't end in just 1 Timothy 1.20. We have the whole of Scripture. So could we end on a high note, the incredible, glorious truth of what is going to happen to the church of Jesus Christ? Listen to these truths. 1 John 3.2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see him as he is. How about Romans 8, 29? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You will be like Christ. And how about 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 50? I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment... In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. The church of Jesus Christ is to prepare by purifying herself. But God will win that battle. The church will be pure and in complete holiness, we will be made into the beautiful bride of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we would join the Apostle John in his final prayer in all the Bible. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Come soon, Lord Jesus. We will be made like you when we see you. We will see you as you are and we will become as you are. And so we long for that day. Lord, in these days where the church of Jesus Christ is continually operating with a cloud, clouds of questions, clouds of gloom and doom happening in our world. We're we're seeing things in the news that we almost feel like we could read about in the Great Tribulation. This incredible polarization between good and evil that is becoming more and more obvious. And yet we look forward and we long for the day. And Lord, it's my prayer that not only myself, but every single person hearing this would truly grasp in their heart that the marriage supper of the Lamb will really happen. A chair will be pulled out for each one of us to be seated at the table of the Lord to gaze upon the beauty of our Savior as for the first time since the night of His arrest, He raises the glass, the cup of communion. 
We look forward to that day. In the meantime, Lord, there is the work of purifications to be done. Might we examine our wedding garments, as it were, and clean the smudges and be faithful until that day when you will finish the process. You will consummate our salvation. Our sanctification will be made perfect. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.